Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Common prosperity is the new buzzword in Beijing. Apart from reducing the wealth gap, this new program propagated by Chinese President Xi Jinping is supposed to shift the Chinese economy towards a more inclusive and fairer model. A big part of the economy is made up of state-owned enterprises, or SUEs, and they are often encouraged by Beijing to serve as spearheads for the new policies. Today, we'll look at their role in the Common Prosperity Program. My name is Johannes Heller-Jon, and I'm joined by two experts on this issue. First, there is Sarah Eaton, Professor for Trans-Regional China Studies at Humboldt University Berlin and co-founder of the Berlin Contemporary China Network. Among other topics, she researches the state of play in SUE policy in the Xi Jinping era. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm also joined by our own Nis Grünberg, Senior Analyst at Merix, who looks at state party governance and the reform of SUEs. Welcome, Nis. Thanks, Johannes. Pleasure to be here. Sarah, as someone who has investigated SUEs and their role for China's economy in detail, how important will SUEs and the state-owned economy more generally be for pushing Xi's common prosperity program? Well, the first thing to say is that uh, SOEs play a huge role in the Chinese economy. Um, for the last 25 years, uh, they've stayed steady in uh, controlling about 25 and accounting for about 25% of GDP. Um, and uh, they remain dominant in key industries, including energy, aviation, finance, uh, telecoms, and transportation. And the financial sector is also uh, overwhelmingly state-owned. Um, so this means that in the uh, Chinese economy, um, SOEs will play a huge role in um, this common prosperity program. However, it unfolds in this early stage of, of the game. Uh, it remains a little bit unclear about exactly what role um, SOEs will take. Uh, but we can see in recent communications that the um, party puts a lot of emphasis on uh, the role of SOEs in uh, delivering on trying to reduce uh, this vast inequality gap that we see in China. Uh, many have uh, noted that uh, Xi Jinping, in using the language of, of common prosperity, is harking back to uh, Maoist language. Uh, and, and interestingly, uh, people are also recalling uh, phrases that Deng Xiaoping uh, used in the uh, 1980s as well. Uh, Deng Xiaoping in, uh, in the early 1980s said that uh, as long as the public ownership uh, system occupies the main position in our economy, polarization can be avoided. Um, so you can see here the connection in the minds of policymakers between the role of preserving and indeed um, strengthening uh, state ownership in the Chinese economy and uh, trying to reduce this polarization that has emerged over time. I think that um, looking, looking ahead, um, this common prosperity push might be used to legitimize an expansion of uh, state ownership in, in certain industries. We've seen talk recently about strengthening and expanding state-owned enterprises in basic industries, in defense and energy, for example, but also about uh, expanding the role of state ownership in high-tech industries, such as aerospace, electronics, telecommunications, and new, new materials. Uh, so this is uh, new language. 
Um, I think also the, the state will push uh, SOEs to play a sort of vanguard role in what it hopes uh, will result in increasing inequality within firms, within, um, within enterprises themselves. So we've seen recent language, for example, about um, pushing SOEs to serve as models for private enterprises, for mixed uh, ownership enterprises, to um, sort of lead the way in being more transparent about um, payment systems for various people working in the firms. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I tried to push through whatever kinds of remuneration um, uh, management reforms that are, that are coming through. So these are, this is what I see happening. Miss, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I think Sarah pointed out the main uh, issues here that are played. I think it's, it's, it's right that this is early game. Uh, so we don't really know uh, what's in common prosperity. Uh, we know a, a couple of the main tenets, uh, you know, uh, greater or less polarization and so on. But it's really not so clear um, how exactly the mechanisms will unfold. Uh, I, I think it's uh, interesting that if we if, if we kind of follow the trend into the future of what has been uh, done and set under Xi Jinping the last 10 years, I think it's it's probably fair to say that he thinks, or the the, the kind of policy that uh, comes out of Beijing right now is anticipating that uh, more public ownership uh, means also less polarization. So it's it's a it's a quite um, old school Marxist view on how production uh, and uh, you know ownership and distribution work together. Uh, that there was an interesting commentary by um, one of the managers or the, one of the party secretaries of one of the uh, state-owned enterprises, um, I think the China Rail uh, Party Secretary, who uh, in, in Xiaoshi, the party's main theory uh, journal, pointed out that uh, avoiding polarization um, means that, that China must insist on more public ownership. Um, so there seems to be a view that more public ownership, you know, strong public economy, uh, automatically leads to more fair redistribution of resources, which is, of course, not really necessarily a given um, because the mechanisms are, as I said, and as Sarah also pointed out, are not really clear. So taxation and so on is really um, not really clearly defined how that will change in the future. These are the more important instruments, actually, than ownership, I would argue, than uh, to, to push for redistribution of resources. Yeah, if we go from the um, what kind of role they're going to play, um, maybe to the how they, they're going to do this. How is the, um, the party uh, effectively mobilizing these, these companies for these political targets? I think you wrote uh, fairly recently an, an article about that in China Quarterly, Sarah. So maybe you can go first uh, in, in yeah, telling us how they are controlled and how they could be employed to, to uh, reach these targets. Sure. Um, here I'm drawing on some recent research with uh, Wendy Leutert, indeed. Um, so I think that there are basically four primary mechanisms uh, through which the party state um, tries to influence um, SOEs and, and guide them in certain directions. The first is the state bureaucracy, uh, the State-Owned Assets Supervision and Administration Commission, a mouthful, the SASIC that was created in 2013. Its basic task is to oversee and guide uh, central government's uh, central government-owned SOEs. Um, and then we have the Cotter management system, which is more clearly embedded in the party state's uh, Leninist system of, of rule. Um, and through this, uh, Chinese SOE leaders who are both executives and state officials are uh, both rotated on a, on a regular basis. Um, so the leader of, of China Mobile you know, uh, might wind up in uh, China Telecom two years later. 
as well as uh, jointly appointed. So the um, the CEO of a particular SOE is likely also uh, the party secretary of that SOE. And so um, this dual role of being uh, deeply embedded in the party, as well as uh, in, in the enterprise, uh, gives a, a high degree of, of influence. Um, as well, we have uh, SOE party committees, and uh, these are embedded in these uh, SOEs as well. And they primarily serve personnel and political functions. Um, they select and evaluate senior personnel. Uh, but they also have a high degree of agenda setting power. So um, they are tasked with uh, reviewing the major decisions that come out uh, of the executives of these firms. Um, and uh, they have the final say in whether they go ahead or not. And then of course we have, uh, uh, last but not least, campaigns, right? And uh, here, we can, here we can think of the very dramatic um, anti-corruption campaign under Xi Jinping. And this is of course a very, very, um, a uh, radical way of sort of bringing SOE managers to heel. And indeed, particularly in the early periods of the anti-corruption campaign, it was indeed uh, central SOEs that one were one of the, the major targets of this campaign. So in all these four mechanisms um, provide ample room, uh, ample means for the state uh, to guide central SOEs. And yet, uh, given the size of these SOEs uh, and the relatively you know, uh, small size, for example, of the SASIC relative to the SOEs, uh, there's always room for um, SOEs to sort of evade and to outright defy, in some cases, uh, central initiatives. Um, I think that space has has contracted uh, quite substantially um, in under under Xi Jinping in the Hu Jintao period. Um, there was much more sort of open defiance even of of central SEs of uh, central guidance. Um, but given the um, use, particularly of of campaigns under Xi Jinping, that sort of space for uh, you know uh, not following the party line has substantially narrowed. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm repeating myself and there's not so much to add, but I, I think, again, if you look at the, the last 10 years and try to continue the trend uh, into the future, um, there's a lot of talk about SU reform, I think, in terms of meaningful structural reform, there's very little or towards efficiency and management. Uh, there's very little that has happened, um, which, uh, you know, tells me that the old problem of, of SOEs really being their own, uh, you know, little kingdoms, as they're sometimes referred to, uh, is still um, in play. But also, uh, and I think this will be even more uh, so important in the future, is we see that there's a, a very strong or very uh, conscious effort by Xi Jinping to control personnel uh, and the uh, reassertion of party managers, you know, of the, the role of the party and, and his control or the, the, the center's control over party organizations and party secretaries is probably the main instrument that, has, uh, that is effectively being strengthened over the last years, more so than other uh, things in SO reform. So to, to me, the, the question really is, um, certainly there will be more control over SOEs by virtue of more control over the leading personnel. Um, but that is, that is not safe, uh, a safe way to uh, initiate the common prosperity program. So they will probably not be more efficient, more innovative, uh, more flexible because of that. You know, you just insert more political and more ideological management in these uh, companies. So the, the, the question really is, um, how can SOEs chip in and become better if the structures, the management, the innovation capacities and so on are not really getting better? I think... Uh, probably the only thing that can be done, and this is maybe what we see, uh, uh, is that you create a more level playing field for SOEs, meaning you 
uh, clip the wings of the better private companies uh, and you absorb the capacities for innovation, for technology and so on uh, uh, from or by integrating and incorporating uh, private enterprises, you do uh, public-private partnerships and so on. So really uh, more incentivizing the private sector to team up and partner up with SOEs instead of uh, making SOEs more like private companies seems to me uh, what we're seeing uh, and, and what will be the trend in the future. Let us move to something that uh, can be seen as an outcome of the, the Communist Party agenda. If we stand outside, what can we expect? Uh, what changes can we expect in the ways SOEs invest or in the kinds of technologies or business sectors they focus on that will be probably the most visible to, to us on the outside? I think we uh, we already see um, the, the first kind of uh, SOEs heeding the call. There's lots of uh, of talk. There's lots of rhetoric from SOEs uh, that they will now engage uh, more actively in common prosperity. You know, uh, and I and I think it's not so clear yet what exactly that entails. But it's clear that in the financial sector and in, in the you know the the, the big uh, funds in the banking sector more so than in the uh, production. Uh, heavy uh, SOE, so that you know the I don't know, rail companies and so on. Um, there we see a shift, I think, slowly uh, emerging uh, towards investing in programs uh, that are uh, aimed at uh, rural revitalization, uh, at kind of developing regional areas that are a little uh, less well off than the coastal areas. So I think in a way, maybe a replication of the Go West strategy uh, from uh, 20 years ago, um, now just focused and repackaged a little bit differently. But basically, that is uh, probably what we will see in the next uh, months. I think sort of stepping back from common prosperity per se and looking at uh, emerging trends about um, where state-owned investment might might be heading. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, I think it's really interesting to see that um, in the light of uh, China's very um, ambitious move to achieve tech independence and to break through the bottlenecks in industries like semiconductors, now uh, SASIC and other sort of instruments of the party state are now calling on central SOEs to pursue technological innovations in uh, these quote-unquote bottleneck industries, uh, such as semiconductors. Uh, So SASIC made a big deal, for example, last spring, uh, when the China Electronics uh, Technology Group Corp uh, developed a high-performance uh, IC chip uh, and China Mobile got a big uh, pat on the back as well for developing an artificial intelligence platform. Uh, so this strikes me as, as, as new and interesting and worth watching. Um, and the rationale that's um, being um, that's being put around uh, these kinds of initiatives is that these SOEs have the financial resources and also the patience to undertake these long-term risky investments that are needed in these high-tech frontier industries that um, private enterprises, um, smaller scale, simply don't have. Um, So this strikes me as as something um, interesting to watch. Uh, Maybe something to add is that the the common prosperity uh, targets, you know, more inclusive growth, uh, not disrupting uh, existing tensions uh, is in some ways also just exacerbating existing tensions in the way China wants to modernize. Uh, so, you know, just to mention one really contentious point is decarbonization. Uh, whilst you have an intensely um, 
unmodern and uh, dirty in terms of uh, carbon emissions uh, SOE sector. So I, I think it, this will be a headache for SOE leaders in the future, you know, in, in, in energy intensive industries, uh, in, in power generation, in steel, cement, and so on, how to really balance this pivot towards decarbonization in policy, you know, st more stringent rules, more expensive uh, prices for energy and so on. Uh, but at the same time, they will be punished if they uh, fire a lot of people and, you know, they don't have uh, found the recipe to, uh, I don't know, make, make entrepreneurs from, for example, the 3 million people that work in coal mining. Uh, so the, the tension really is how to modernize, you know, without uh, rocking the boat. Um, and, and this will be even more painful, I think, for the, uh, for the SOEs now, the Common Prosperity Program is in place and is kind of putting a demand on them to be better at, at, at uh, a driving inclusive growth, uh, you know, keep jobs in place and so on, while at the same time have this drive for modernization and innovation and uh, decarbonization. That that will be an interesting uh, space of tension to watch. Maybe also the language on common prosperity uh, is so vague because they are well aware that these tensions will take a couple of years to uh, resolve at the very least. The Common Prosperity Program seems to be very inward looking. It is about uh, a lot of um, wealth redistribution and, and fairness in the economy. Um, does it have any implications for foreign actors? Um, can we expect more or less interaction with SUEs? And, and maybe, but that would be a different question. Is, is this approach something that can be applicable to other countries as well? Like interesting to, to uh, take on board in other countries. I think foremost, this is uh, an domestic uh, targeted program. You know, there's a there's a there's a populist in Xi Jinping here also, uh, and it's not it's not unpopular. Um, I mean, at at the very core, I think common prosperity really uh, is a kind of a strategy to um, create more social cohesion to create you know to to really get at the core of what the party is really nervous about, which is polarization. And, you know. Uh, people breaking away from believing in the model uh, led by the party that China will uh, go forward, you know, develop, get, be more modern, and uh, you have, have a bit more money in, in your in your pocket next year, and so on. So, uh, it is kind of a popular a populist um, concept in, in that way, because it, uh, as I said before, it doesn't really provide the mechanisms to to change so much uh, structurally at this point, at least. Um, I, and and for that, it it probably works, you know, as a as a program. Um, I think it has very limited uh, application as a slogan uh, that generates soft power for China. Um, but at the same time, it's also not something that other countries do not struggle with. I mean, uh, China and the US have roughly similar levels of inequality, you know, common prosperity at its core, certainly something that the American society could also benefit from. Uh, inequalities also in Germany, there was a recent uh, report, is, is increasing, there are more poor people. So I think it's it's a very uh, universal concern, right, to to try to uh, prevent society from just drifting too far uh, apart. But I guess the, um, the toolkit that can be brought to bear is just very different in China compared to, to Western countries, right? Well, I, I, it's a bit surprising really how uh, careful Beijing is uh, uh, and, and it's not really daring to use the more socialist uh, toolkit that they you know, at least when you think about it, should have in their, in their pockets. So taxation, 
um, very, very hesitant to introduce uh, higher tax, uh, you know, property tax, progressive income tax, and, and all these things that exist in other countries and are known to really, uh, you know, move the needle in terms of structural redistribution. They're very hesitant uh, to do that. And uh, Xi Jinping has himself uh, pointed out that common prosperity doesn't mean uh, an egalitarian society and not even a you know, welfare society of, of the types of Scandinavia also. Uh, it's still one where you need to struggle or, str or strive uh, for your own benefit. So um, I, I'm not so sure how much really uh, is we, we can expect in terms of you know, higher taxation and so on in the future. And just to sort of um, add to that, um, one of the things that uh, we've seen in, in recent years is the um, central government putting lots of pressure on central SOEs to uh, contribute more to the National uh, Social Security Fund. So there was this uh, trial scheme that came out in 2017 to push SOEs to transfer like 10% of their shares to this fund. Um, and this is this is the core pension uh, fund. And I think we can expect more of this kind of um, pressure uh, distributed through party committees, distributed through um, the leaders themselves on SOEs to sort of uh, pony up to, to contribute to this effort to uh, redistribute wealth. But um, I agree with Nice that this is uh, these things are ultimately not going to be um, essential in this uh, big social transformation that um, China is, is attempting. And, and also, you know, the, this uh, ominous third redistribution, right, which is basically charity or voluntary uh, kind of provision of resources from wealthy or uh, well-off businesses and individuals towards less uh, fortunate parts of society, it, it's, that is not really going to change the structure uh, or the kind of the structural uh, redistribution. Uh, and, it, you know, Alibaba, for example, uh, has been extremely active and has invested a lot of a lot of resources in uh, rural schools and so on but it's not going to change anything uh, for china as a as a you know as a society at, at that level uh, so i'm i'm skeptical that they are uh, at this point willing to really introduce the mechanisms that would actually lead to uh, the olive shaped society uh, which which is uh, kind of put out as the, the ideal type of society where you have very few uh, in the lower and very few in the in the top ends of income as a final question, um, let's take a look ahead. How do you two see the future of SEs and the attitude towards state ownership in general over the coming years, let's say? Uh, is China's economy headed towards more state involvement to advance, among other things, political targets such as common prosperity or, I mean, probably not, but maybe less involvement? Um, Sarah, do you want to go first? Sure. Um I mean, if you look at, for example, the language coming out from the recently concluded uh, Central Economic Work Conference, which talked about preventing the savage growth of capital. I mean, one of the things that's really striking uh, the developments in the last year or so is uh, the, you know, really uh, quite um, uh, strong language that's used to criticize um, uh, parts of the private economy that are growing really rapidly to target uh, real estate, uh, to target aspects of the tech sector. And so I think that, you know, looking, looking ahead, there is little question in anyone's minds, I think, that the state will continue to see um, developing and strengthening the state sector as, as a priority. At the same time, there are sort of countervailing forces um, that one needs to 
pay attention to. And here I'm also um, referring to uh, some good research by, by Andrew Batson on this, which is uh, what are the sort of unintended consequences of uh, the tightening of the financial sector uh, since 2017, um, the efforts to sort of rein in um, uh, lending in the, in the banking sector. Um, this is, of course, bad news for the SOEs, uh, which have been lived on soft loans for uh, forever. And so if this... Um, lending environment becomes more strict, uh, then there will be implications for the role that SOEs can play in the economy and in the, uh, the, uh, their capacity to expand. So I think that, you know, looking ahead, it's uh, very likely that, um, you know, SOEs will continue to play a really, really important role. Let's see what happens in the financial sector, uh, but also that the state will, despite this uh, really strong rhetoric that we've seen in, in recent years, uh, also be doing what it can to uh, support the development of the private sector, but also in a way uh, in which uh, the party maintains a, a guiding role. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, I, I think... You know, very, very simply um, that uh, as long as Xi Jinping is in power, there will not be any retreatment from, uh, you know, having a very strong uh, state-owned enterprise uh, sector, uh, very strong political involvement uh, and steering capacity. You know, Barry Norton uh, has, has put forth the concept of, of grand steerage. And that very, at, at the core, also entails a strong state sector or state-controlled sector. Uh, I think I think though that we will see um, more, um, let's say, creative and flexible arrangements, uh, be, you know, in ownership, in control, and so on. Um, so, kind of a more fluid boundary between private and public, and this has been put forth by many researchers in the in the past. The um, binary uh, view that we have on ownership, for example, on uh, you're, you're either private or you're public, it doesn't really make so much sense in China any longer because there's so many different types of partnerships uh, that are ongoing. And, you know, you might be uh, by, vast, by a vast majority uh, privately owned, but then you have golden shares that are now introduced more and more. So a strong, uh, let's say, a veto power by uh, political actors in the boardroom. Uh, and I think that is a situation we just have to live with, you know, the, the more uh, direct and indirect involvements of political actors and political incentives in also private economy. And um, so it, it's it's certainly not going to be less state-owned enterprise, state-owned sector. Um, it's probably also going to be not more, but more influence in general of political incentives and ideological, uh, ideologically driven um, policy. So in general, I think we will, we will probably go forward the same uh, trend uh, of the last five years under Xi Jinping that we have seen. So that means for us, we have to have a close eye on further developments in the area and also probably even with private companies have a close look how private they really are. Um, thank you very much, uh, Sarah and Nis, for joining the podcast, for your time and for your insights. Thank you. Thanks, Johannes. Pleasure to be here. And this was the Merrick's podcast. Thank you for joining us and here next time. Goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.